What do you think of when you hear the word fundamentalist? What? Simpletons, okay. Okay. Most of the time when you read it, is it a, with uh, positive connotations or negative connotations? <laughs> okay. Not when you read it when it's written. Is it written with positive or negative? I mean, negative. you'll read um, Al-Qaeda, a fundamentalist Muslim group. You'll read it in terms like that. And, uh, and most of the time we read about it, it has nothing to do with what we'll be talking about today. But it's usually in a, these are far out fringe wackos. The, the only place where fundamentalist is, is positive, it seems like, is in coaching. When they say, get back to the fundamentals. You know? Yep. Yep. And uh, <coughs> focus on the fundamentals. That's the only place that it's ever used in a, in a positive way, usually. Well, um, why, before we get into where uh, and how this idea of fundamentalism came along, was why? Well, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about, we had the Mormons come along and the Jehovah's Witnesses and Darwinism all came along and they, and they were major frontal attacks on Christianity where they said, you know, you, you know, like Mormonism, you guys only have, you know, half the story. Here's the, here's the important part of the story that you missed. And, and Jehovah Witness, similar. And then, and then Darwinism with, the, with an attack of, you know, you got it completely messed up. You don't understand what's going on with this. Um, in, um, in the late 1800s in Germany, we had uh, the beginning of a European movement to... That, that also was attacking the Bible, where they, they just went through um, and said, you know, we don't, we don't believe that this was really legitimately Scripture, that somebody else wrote this and threw it in. And, and you've all heard, you know, like, for instance, um, the Jesus seminar that happens every year where they go through and say, did Jesus really say this? You know, and they're down to, you know, he said hi to his mother. And uh, that's about it. They, they just, you know, they say, Jesus wouldn't say that. Jesus wouldn't say that. Jesus wouldn't do that. <laughs> and uh, they end up eliminating a big chunk of it. Well, as early as the 1800s, this was happening in Germany. And that carried over to the rest of Europe, including uh, England. And what happens in England happens in America. And so we had a, we had a time where, where much of what was what was had been accepted for a long time uh, in the Bible was being questioned, and part of it is the same argument that that we hear today uh, sometimes, and and the same argument that I sometimes argue that you know the King James version is really hard to understand sometimes. You know, it, it's not written in language that we use every day, and so. Um, you want to go to the next slide, Jay? The first slide, actually. The, the uh, Revised Standard Version came along in, in 19, 
28. And if you got your Bible, uh, go ahead and hit the next button, Jay. Um, somebody look up Isaiah 4.17 while we're just talking about this. What they did was they, they went back to the... 7.14, isn't it? 7.14? Is that what it should be? Could be. I'm dyslexic with numbers. Looks right to me. Which one is it? 714. 7.14, my bad. Um, they, uh, they went back and they used um, several versions of the Bible to, as their update, to, to use it as an update. And they didn't go, like for instance, when, they, when the New International Version came out, they went back to early, the earliest manuscripts they could find and used those. Um, they didn't do that with the Revised Standard Version. They didn't, in fact, they used some, some versions that, that, that was, even in 1928, pretty much accepted as corrupt at the time. And um, who's, got, who's got 714? Who's got it? And Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay. A very common verse that we hear, especially around Christmas time, right? I mean, that's, that, that's, a, that's a big one. Does anybody know what the Revised Standard Version says? I don't have a copy of it, but uh, what's that? It says young woman instead of a virgin. Okay, there's a pretty significant difference there, okay, between a young woman and a virgin. I mean, lots of young women have give birth. It's... A fairly common occurrence. Not that many virgins give birth, and um, so this was just this was probably the most glaring one. But there, but there were other examples of where they take things and just water it down uh, enough. And and you know who would think that the Bible would be one of the weapons Satan is using? So so as a result of these movements towards liberalism, fundamentalism came into, into being. And it's, it's, a, it's a crime that fundamentalism even had to, had to be. Um, I, uh, James Beller wrote in the Collegiate Baptist History Workbook, he wrote, it is a sad fact of history that fundamentalism ever had to become a movement. Fundamentalism is simply stating and defending what is surely believed, and and that's what that's what fundamentalism is. It's believing the basic, basic, basics, and yet here is, you know, an attack right out of a new modern version of the Bible of it's not a virgin who's giving birth, but a young woman. Okay, that that that's a pretty major attack. So in uh, the term. Fundamentalism came about at a series of Bible conferences that were held up in, actually they were held all over the place and then they, then they kind of settled in Ontario in the, on the Canadian side of the Niagara. And it was the Niagara Bible Conference. And this was a picture of the place where they met. It was pretty cool. They had a, a big pavilion and, they, and it was, it was kind of like uh, Moody's Founders Week or something like that. It was where a lot of people came. To, to study the Bible together. And, you know, we, we have conferences like that, and, but we very seldom have ones that are quite as significant as these turned out to be. And 
among them that you see up there, among the people who were there, uh, W.E.B. Blackstone, who was way on the left, James Brooks right here. This is Adar- say it. Adoniram. Adoniram Judson um, Gordon, named for the great missionary. Uh, this is a picture of, um, of uh, Hudson Taylor. And they were all there. I, w- I want to just touch on them for a minute. Go ahead to the next slide. The first one is uh, Blackwell, who um, wanted to be in the Civil War. Couldn't, uh, he was too frail to be in the Civil War, so joined a Christian society that would eventually become the American Red Cross. And so even though he couldn't be a soldier, uh, he was attached to General Grant's army and traveled throughout them. He went then to Chicago and became a businessman where he became acquaintance acquaintances, more than acquaintances, became close friends with D.L. Moody and became, um, became a preacher and became the original Christian Zionist. Way back pre-World War I, he was pushing for the establishment of Israel as uh, the reestablishment of Israel as a nation and really put a lot of funds towards it, wrote a lot of books about it and um, the argument against Israel uh, was, that, was that they abandoned the land. I mean, it was now in the hands of the Palestinians. The, the, the Jews didn't live there anymore. They abandoned it. And he put forth a very strong um, international legal argument that they didn't abandon it. They were carried away. And if you're carried away from something, that is not abandonment. And, and you know, pris- prisoners of war and such, after the war, get to go home to their homes. And just because it had been a- an issue of, of nearly 2,000 years, um, wasn't, shouldn't be something that holds them away. Anyway, he was really big on that movement. Go ahead, Jay. The next one, James Brooks was the pastor of the Walnut Street Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, which was a huge church. A uh, very influential teacher, and I left the L out of dispensationalism. But, uh, but he was the father of American dispensationalism, and I'm going to let you explain what dispensationalism is. We'll need more time than we have this morning. <laughs> is, is there a reader? Can you give a one sentence? Well, it, it's basically that, that God, God's, God never changes, but he works in various ways. In different times. Initially, there was the age of innocence. Adam and Eve, they were innocent. Sin changed that. Then there was the age of law. And then there was Christ coming. I'm just giving a brief Christ coming. We live now in the church age. And this age will end when Christ comes again. And uh, Christ is going to fulfill all the promises to Israel during the tribulation time and so on. So it's, it's understanding God's, how his hand is working at various time periods um, to say Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the same, but he hasn't always worked the same. We have the completed canon of Scripture. We have the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. We have Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law. But there was the period of innocence. There was the period of sin and the law. 
and grace and the church age. And so it was, it's understanding how God has been at work through the ages. And this would be definitely the theology that we, right. as Baptists, subscribe to. Would this be in, as opposed to covenant theology? Is, I mean, would that be like the opposite? Of right. It? Okay. And, and in that, much of this centers around where does Israel come to play in this? And um, what is God's plan for Israel? Um, not that it centers around that, but it involves much of that. And the church age and your whole eschatology. Um, covenant theology eventually believes that... Um, Christ is going to bring his kingdom here. Some even go so far as to believe that Satan is bound right now. Um, I have a hard time understanding how they, how they picture that. But they really believe Israel does not exist anymore, that Christians are the new Israel. And um, the, the very nation Israel flies in the face of that. There's no explanation for Israel apart from God's hand. So it would be safe to say that these guys, would, if they were alive today, would be members of Friends of Israel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Go on to the next one, please. Um, Adoniram. Adoniram Judson Gordon. Just say A.J. Gordon. A.J. Gordon uh, was, a, was a very uh, influential Baptist preacher of his day in Boston, a graduate of Brown University and Newton Theological Seminary, which today is a very liberal seminary, but uh, dominated by the uh, Church of Christ, um, but not, wasn't at that time. Uh, founder of Gordon College, wasn't called Gordon College when he founded it, but later took his name. He was the founder and the first president of that, which is up in Massachusetts, which is still a very strong evangelical Christian, not solely Baptist, but Christian uh, college um, that was one of the first colleges in, in America to um, not only admit women, but encourage women to, to uh, get a college education. And, and when he started, now it's like $20,000 a year, but when he was the president, um, it was free. And... Uh, and he was a hymn writer, uh, especially the tunes and the song that we sang to start out, My Jesus, um, I Love Thee, he wrote. And that's why we sang that this morning. He, he was the author of that, of the tune of that song. All right, go on. And uh, Hudson Taylor, of course, uh, was a missionary to China, uh, was the founder of Inland China Mission, and was really the father of missions in China. Anything you want to say about him? No. Okay. And then finally, one who I didn't have on the original pictures up there was Cyrus Schofield, who you probably have heard of from the Schofield Bible. Schofield uh, Study Bible, probably the most read study Bible. I don't have any statistics on that, but very widely accepted. He was a member of Ulysses S. Grant's administration. He'd been in the Kansas legislature and and then he was part of Ulysses S. Grant's administration. Now, Ulysses S. Grant, while pretty much a drunk, uh, was an honest man. The people he put around him were not. And 
this guy would be one of the people he put around him who was not honest. Schofield was a scoundrel. He was a drunk. He was, if, if you can think of something nasty about somebody, this was him. He ended up going to prison, going to federal prison uh, for a while. And I put he's the Charles Colson of his day. It was while he was in federal prison in St. Louis a couple of slides ago, James Brooks had a prison ministry and led him to Christ. And Brooks was one of the greatest Bible teachers of his time. And uh, Schofield uh, got saved um, and became a major Bible student. Uh, went on to become the uh, pastor of the first uh, congregational church in Dallas and then associate pastor of the Moody Church in Northfield, Massachusetts. Founded the Philadelphia School of the Bible and, of course, wrote the, uh, wrote the uh, notes for the Schofield Study Bible. So here's a man whose life was greatly, greatly changed uh, by Christ. And these guys were the foundation of the... I guess I shouldn't say it. In fact, I completely take that back. The Holy Spirit was the foundation of the Niagara Bible Conference. But uh, these these were the biggest names of Christianity of the day. I mean, these these guys were, uh, you know, the Chuck Swindoll and the Billy Graham and the, and the, uh, you know, Albert Moeller's of the, of the day. This Niagara Bible Conference, um, it was back in 1878. 1883 was the first one in Niagara. And that's really where things got started, was in 1883. And um, they, they, because the battle was going on, this uh, German rationalism and, and um, really the elevation of man will determine, as Mark alluded, will determine what is, is actually authentic God's Word and what isn't, uh, this higher criticism really prompted these conferences to to take some stand and identify wait a minute this is a bad, this is a fundamental and um you know, thankfully they they were willing to battle for it and they were often called fighting fundamentalists quick rabbit trail at the same time the believe it or not it, it, back then when the population of the earth was maybe two to three billion people and the population of the United States was around 75 million, the, the issue of overpopulation was huge. Um, the, uh, um, way, back, way back, like in the second century, um, back when the, when the population of the world was probably 500 million, um, a theologian by the name of uh, Malthus uh, wrote that we must thank God for every war, every disaster, every plague that keeps the population of the world down. Because uh, the world at that time with a half a billion people was so crowded that there was no way that it could sustain itself. And uh, that's, even today, that's called the Malthusian um, view of population. And it's, it's taught, you read about it, just... Look up Malthusian sometime. And, and, you know, the idea, this is where China went to the one, one child um, policy that they have. This is where 
why the United States tries to export birth control and abortion to the rest of the world and why, why, this, why these are an issue. Well, the flip side of it, which sounds really good, and, and I often call myself a cornucopian when it comes to, to population uh, control, is that the world is a cornucopia, you know, the big old Thanksgiving horn of plenty, that there's plenty. There is plenty. This world has got plenty of resources. This world has got plenty of land. It's got plenty of everything. And that people are not the problem. All right, now that sounds really good, doesn't it? I mean, that really does, that sounds good. But the last sentence of it is that people have always found the solution and people will always find the solution. People are the answer. And so it becomes a, which, which I agree with that, a lot more than I do with the Malthusian side of things. But the, it, it, has, it brings about a humanistic way of looking at things of saying that people are the answer, people are the answer. And if you take the first part of that... It's wonderful. And that if we follow God's design... It's it, great. It's right. a great philosophy. But You know, I, I know probably ten years ago or so, I saw a statistic about the world population, and um, that that you could fit, if you gave... I'd have to go back and find it, but you could give every person in the world a mile square piece of property, and I think everyone in the world could fit in the North American continent. Now, just an illustration, needless to say, you're not going to grow much up on the Arctic Circle, but um, it, God knew what he was doing when he designed everything, and that part, the first part is true. The second part, the humanistic will find an answer, and it's wipe out people. Which is, which is why, you know, with these philosophies coming in every single part of, every single part of society, I mean, we're being attacked, I'm saying, in, in 1883, we're being attacked, you know, Rationally, we're being attacked um, through the Bible itself. We're being attacked um, by, by scholars dealing with population, scholars dealing with economics, scholars dealing with history. We're, we're being attacked by scientists. Um, every single... Satan has, has put his people in positions surrounding the, the uh, community of of believers that that were going to be attacked from all sides, and I mean it was it was a very effective thing, and so we come along and say we are going to we are going to make a list of really what are the fundamentals. And Pastor and I have talked long before we ever started this class about about the issue of separation versus versus ecumenism. And ecumenism, of course, is the extreme of you hang out with everybody and your buddies with everybody, and it's it's everything. But but who? When do you separate, and why do you separate? What are the issues that are worthy of separating and saying no? You no, I'm not going to have anything to do with this group at all. And other ones that you say, you know, for instance, honestly, we don't. 
we're an independent Baptist church, right? That in alone tells you something. That we, you know, we don't like anybody, right? But but is that true? I mean, we we have a relationship with the Corden Bible Church. We have a relationship with Goshen Baptist. We have have a relationship with with uh, Maranatha Baptist Bible College, with Faith Baptist Bible College. I mean, there through are through our missions, through our missions, we're cooperating. You know, various missions with many other churches to help send forth missionaries. And, and some that are regular Baptists, some that are independent, probably some that are, you know, conservative Baptists. And so where do we draw the line? Where do we say, no, you know, we're not going to, if you're going to be associated with them, we're not going to be associated. Because, I mean, for instance, if one of our, if one of our missionaries came and said, hey, I'm really excited to tell you that, that uh, the... Uh, Church over in Osceola, the, the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, has taken me on for $100 a month. Now, wouldn't the hair on the back of your neck kind of stand up a little bit and say, wait a minute, do we want to be, do we want to be in the same picnic basket with these guys? And, um, and so, so the fundamentals are really a great place. And we this might... The question you just asked might be something good for all of us to think about in regard to today. What are the issues that, yeah, we can live with this, but no, we can't live with that. But that's what they were deciding back at these conferences. And they basically boiled it down. The the hot issues at that time came down to five fundamentals. And it'd be interesting to know if, if it's interesting to think about are these the five boiling points today? No. It's interesting too. At one of the Niagara conferences, they listed fourteen, and how they got it down to the five. But um, does anybody have an idea what the five fundamentals are? Right. The the first one was the inerrancy of Scripture. There was a real battle. Do you have them listed yep. here? Jay. That's the first one. Go ahead. Well, th- this is what I handed off to you. The inspiration of the Bible by the Holy Spirit and the inerrancy of Scripture as a result of this. Um, that that And, you know, there are questions. Well, what about, you just said that the Revised Standard Version has got mistakes. In the original language... Um, that the, that the, there are no mistakes, and and that and that it's not to man to determine. Well, this is part of the Bible, and this part isn't, and start taking a scissors to it. And that God has preserved His word, and uh, we can trust it. So the inerrancy of Scripture was foundational, and that was a major battleground, and it still is. It was in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say this? And it always is. And going back to what you said, if you don't step back and see the big picture, this is spiritual warfare. Satan is seeking to destroy the cause of Christ, and God has been at work all the way through. But um, the first one was this. And if you, you, uh, 
you know, it's really clear in the Bible, like when Jesus is telling a parable, that it's a parable, that it's, it's a story. And the rest of it, the fundamentalists, myself included, would say, you've got to accept that at face value. If he says he created the earth in six days, he created it in six days. Was Adam a real person? You know, I would venture a guess that, that most people, if you ask people on the street, that more than half would say Adam was not a real person. He's symbolic. He's the beginning of mankind, right? That, that, it's, that you know, he was you know, the first homo sapien or maybe homo erectus or whatever. But that, that Adam wasn't a specific real person. Well, not only does the Bible say Adam was a real person, it doesn't say, you know, this who represented all mankind. Um, but, but I say then, was Jesus a real person? Yeah, Jesus, was Jesus God? A lot of people, yeah, Jesus God. So Jesus would know, right? Jesus referred to Adam as a real person, referred to him like he knew him, which he did. Okay, <laughs> and... And so, you know, it backs itself up. Next one would be the virgin birth of Christ. Now, that, it's interesting that that, is, that that was what was being attacked at that time. Uh, and I don't know. I, I don't, even though this is like the, a really out there one, I mean, this is, you know, Jesus was born of a virgin? Okay, there's... That, that's kind of out there, isn't it? Okay, but I'll bet that there are more people who believe that Jesus was born of a virgin in the United States than there are people who believe in creation. You know, it's, people are, well, you know, creation, I don't know. It's, but, you know, was Jesus born of a virgin? Yeah, Jesus, you know, Mary was a virgin. I bet the vast majority of Roman Catholics absolutely believe Mary was a virgin, yeah. but they don't believe in, in uh, creation. Or many don't, anyway. Third? Okay, moving on. Oh, you want to get through with this today? Go ahead, Jay. I don't remember what it is, so you better hit Okay. The belief that Christ's death was the, the atonement for sin. The no, you don't have to have good works, there's, it's, not a, it's not a multifaceted thing, the substitutionary uh, atonement. And there was a major battle over the blood. Is the blood important? And all over the, the life and work of Christ. And so that was nailed down as a fundamental. Jay? The bodily resurrection of Christ. When Jesus raised from the dead, was it really him? Or was it just like a spirit? Was it a ghost that was walking around? And why was this so important? If Christ didn't raise from the dead, everything else is gone. I mean, he said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not risen, our faith is in vain. And if he isn't risen, the first fundamental, the inerrancy of Scripture, is out the window because that, that's not true. So this was a major thing and is. 
And finally, the historical reality of Christ's miracles. That did, did Jesus really do these? Um, and, you know, were, or were they just, you know, tricks? Were they, did they really, did they get made up? That's, a, that's another one. Did, you know, did, were these people, I can tell a really good story. And every time I tell it, I can make it a little better. And, and every time you tell it, you almost believe it. And I start to believe it, yeah. And, and did these people, were they really good storytellers? And when they, get, when they rewrote it from this manuscript to that manuscript, did, did the crowds get bigger? And did, you know, did Jesus originally feed you know, eight people around the picnic table with the five loaves and two fishes and eventually ended up with 5,000? What about this for homework? that we have to go this week and decide five or however. What do you think are fundamentals today? They chose these because those were real battlegrounds. In saying what are the fundamentals today, it's not saying, oh, we don't believe those, but they pick these because that's what was really being attacked. What do you think are the grounds for fundamentals that, that we need to, as a coach said, let's get back to the fundamentals. What's worth separating over? If you were a coach, who, what, who would you cut off your team if they wouldn't accept this? If they just refuse to go with this one. What, what's worth separating over? All right. No. There we have it. Your homework for this week. And um, in understanding, the battles take different looks and different fronts at different times. And um, it's important that we be aware. Many people are still, still just doing the same battle with horse and buggy in regard to Hey, we're living in a different age. It doesn't mean that the good and evil is different. It means the warfare has taken different different sites. I mean, we battle differently now in Iraq than we did in World War One or World War Two. And spiritually, we have to be aware of where we're at. All right, let's bow together in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for... Those that have gone before us that were committed to truth, committed to you. Thank you for the sacrifice that many of them made. And Lord, thank you that truth marches on and that you've allowed us the opportunity to be bearers of the gospel. And I pray that you would give us wisdom how to properly represent you how to earnestly contend for the faith. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would raise us up to be bright lights for you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.